Welcome back to the Made Possible podcast. Or if you're here for the first time, it's great to have you. Thanks for joining us. My name is Carly Cunningham, and I'm thrilled to be your host of this collaboration between Small Business BC and my very own small business, Big Bold Brand. The purpose of Made Possible is to share revealing, inspiring, and sometimes wince-worthy stories about starting and growing a small business. My goal as your host is to expose insightful wisdom and savvy advice about what makes building a successful small business possible. Most importantly, we created Made Possible for you, the motivated small business owner who is seeking inspiration and insights to fuel your entrepreneurial fire and make your vision a reality. Before we dive into this week's interview that is just loaded with business brilliance, here's a quick word from our sponsor. This first season of the Made Possible podcast is brought to you thanks to our sponsors, WorkSafe BC. In addition to their important role in workplace health and safety, WorkSafe BC has worked alongside our provincial health officials to support workers and employers across the province during the pandemic. To find out more, or to view WorkSafe BC's comprehensive list of COVID-19 resources, visit worksafebc.com. On today's episode, we're speaking with the founders of Matador, who've created the only software solution of its kind that combines geospatial data with team collaboration. Matador was this year's winner of Small Business BC's Best Innovation category, sponsored by Western Economic Diversification Canada. Vincent and Sean are serial entrepreneurs with global experience. They're going to give us an insider's view of the Vancouver tech startup scene, sharing both what's holding it back and why it's a great place to begin and grow a startup. No matter if you're in tech or not, there's a ton of business brilliance in this episode. We're going to talk about how to deliver a great pitch, a great way to vet a possible business partner, why community is critically important to any business, and what it's like doing business in a fast-paced city of 25 million people, and so much more. Let's dive in. Vincent, Sean, welcome to the podcast. We're so excited to have you both here today. So our listeners can get a sense of who's who in the zoo here and by voice for you. Can you please each introduce yourself and tell us your title at Matador? Hi, everyone. My name is Vincent Lam. I'm the CEO and also the head of product at Matador. And I'm Sean. Uh, I'm the other co-founder and I take care of business and uh, everything Vincent doesn't want to deal with, which is more business <laughs> side of things. So yeah, I, I'm basically the external facing guy, sales, marketing. And yeah, and because of that, I think we make a pretty good team. I like that. I think your business card should say guy in charge of taking care of business. What do yeah. you think? Yeah. Yeah. I awesome. think once, w- once we get to a certain level of, um, you know, <laughs> then we can do that. But I think for now, I think we have to keep more, uh, more of a professional, uh, you know, on, on the card or title. Keep, at it, least. keep it, keep it buttoned up. Yeah, yeah. 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 Brilliant. Speaking of buttoned up, you did a darn good job this year in the Small Business BC Awards. And I want to congratulate you on your winning SBBC's 2021 Innovation Award. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was, yeah, um, so it was, it was very, uh, we didn't anticipate to win. Um, so it was quite the experience. Yeah, it was super competitive. Like when we were looking at other competition, 
or competitors uh, like we wouldn't be imagining us uh, like winning that but uh, it's truly an honor and and really an, a good experience for us yeah having been in the same category as you when going through the profiles and then watching the videos I would echo that with you. It was um, humbling and honoring to be a part of that group of folks. And I think you guys are the are the gold medal winners. And I do think you're very well deserved, especially for what you did this year. We're going to dive into that a little bit later. Um, but everyone in the category was really amazing this year. You're no strangers to awards and business competitions, having participated in big pitch competitions like TechCrunch and South by Southwest. Why would you recommend taking part in business competitions? What's the benefit or value to your business? Um, so a lot of people look at business competition, especially pitch competition like TechCrunch or South by Southwest, more as a way to pitch to investors or gain any sort of publicity. Um, but there's actually a lot of business development value coming out of pitch competition. Uh, we recently engaged in a pretty big civil engineering firm based in Toronto, um, and we haven't like we wouldn't have the opportunity to network or get a chance to know them if it wasn't for a local pitch competition that we have taken place. So uh, pitch competitions and business competition can be a bit distracting at times because when you're pitching on stage, you know, virtually or in person, it derives you time away from talking to customers. Uh, but at the same time, if done right, if you go into specific um, business competition or challenges within your vertical, it can create a lot of business development opportunities. Um, and that's just kind of how we've been growth hacking by utilizing different channels through exposures and talking to a lot of people because you never know who's actually in the audience and it might add a lot of value long-term to your business as well. I would second that for sure. And, and uh, I would also add the competition usually comes with mentorship and the push to uh, get your messaging right and all these things. So I mean, participating uh, in, in these type of uh, competition gives you the pressure and also the reason for, you know, tightening up everything that you need uh, in, before you present to someone. And uh, whether or not we're winning the award, it's it's actually a good feedback. Uh, we can actually um, start hearing, you know, from the judges, from uh, the network, uh, the people who we are networking, what's good, what's not. And then we can refine our messaging or even our business uh, out, out of these competitions. So. It's a way to validate. And the other thing uh, I feel, especially small businesses or startups that needs needs a lot is the uh, confidence building. So confidence as in like the social confidence. People doesn't know our brand yet. So, but if they know, you know, uh, we're endorsed by a certain competition or at least we're making effort in joining those, you know, uh, yeah, we 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 uh, seems to be more legit. Uh, if you go, if you start talking to the you know, especially the tier one uh, venture capitalists and other other people and even businesses as well. So, yeah, excellent. Um, one of the things that you said, Sean, was growth hacking. So not only growth hacking your business, what I heard was growth hacking, hacking your network. So being in the circles with other like entrepreneurs who can maybe provide sounding board or feedback and then also raising your own game in in the competitiveness of understanding who's around you. Yeah, absolutely. What are some few words of advice that you would give entrepreneurs, business owners to improve their chances of making it into the final rounds and or winning in business competitions? Are there, is there a formula you guys have come up with or are there some things that stand out? Uh, I think what really seems to be, you know, looking back at like as a hindsight, 
I think the most common trends or what we have seen that proves to be more successful is having a really short, concise message. Um, and that's very easy for people to understand. Avoid using jargons, avoid using industry buzzwords. You know, a lot of people like to say, you know, we're the we're the next, we're the Google, we're the Uber of so and so with the ability to be, you know, the next Google, and then you know, throwing all these big buzzwords around, right? So, being concise and really see who you're talking to, right? And a lot of people think that you know, I need to actually, uh, you know, make it seem like I'm talking to a wide variety of people. But at the end of the day, you really have to define who your target audience is during that pitch.、Um, so I think the common misconception is that a lot of people say I need to dumb it down as much as I can so that even a five year old can understand. A lot of investors would tell you this, right? But Uh, ironically enough, if you dumb it down too much, then you might lose interest of potential people in the audience that could be your target audience. So I think there's a fine line. You have to stay concise, but at the same time, you don't want to simplify it too much,、uh, and just being able to, you know, convey your message very,、uh, very easily without using a lot of jargon and、uh, industry buzzwords. So what I'm hearing you say is, understand who your ideal key audience is in that environment, meet them where they're at, and Resonate with them.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Awesome. What about you, Vincent? Any tips on how to do a stellar job and make it into the top five? I would say、uh, truly understand where, the,、uh, like, what is the state of your own business is、uh, in terms of all the numbers, the, the you know,、uh, all these things that you know, investor. If you're raising money, investor will be asking you, you know, what is your CAC, right? Customer acquisition cost. You know what is your runway? Where's your AR? You know what's your projection? All these things are actually like when we're going through、uh, the final five. You know、uh, we're being uh, interviewed and、uh, asked a lot of great and and tough questions, right? So many of these questions are related to our business state, and、uh, so I would say,、um, yeah, truly understand and and don't exaggerate,、um, so that. You know when you're when you're talking to、um, you know the interviewers, you know you sound more authentic, feel more confident、uh, as a business owner. Definitely、uh, do do a lot more homework.、Um, and the other thing I would recommend is go to different types of competition, big or small, right? Give it a try. And、um, like Sean and I have been joining different competition, and we lost we lost a lot of times、uh, before we actually <laughs> get to this point. And you know it's accumulation of experience, so、uh, it's not like a overnight、uh, winning, definitely. So I would re- actually recommend people to start gaining experience, you know,、uh, talking, talking to different、uh, judges and, and and getting feedback all around. I love that. I love that. What I'm hearing you say is practice, 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 and practice makes more practice, right?、Um, I also heard you say there's a nuance in what you said, and what I was hearing was put yourself in the judge's shoes. You know, as you're going through each stage of the competition, put yourself in their shoes and be curious about what are they going to ask, what proof are they looking for, what's going to make you stand out to them as the clear winner. So I absolutely love that. That's fantastic. So let's go back to the beginning of Matador. I want to know the story of how Sean and Vincent started working together. Yeah,、um, I guess I can kind of、uh, start there, and Vince, feel free to fill in the void if I'm missing anything. So, Vincent and I actually met.、Uh, I would say over ten years ago. Actually,、uh, you know, we keep saying you know about ten years ago, but it's actually past ten years. 
that we've known each other. So we actually met uh, at a badminton tournament. Um, this was when Vincent, I believe you were at Google and I was still at UBC. I was still an undergrad at UBC. I took chemistry in UBC. Um, and yeah, we, you know, played a couple of games, got to know each other. Um, and we didn't really um, cross path until my previous startup. So my previous startup was in the mobile VR space. I was also pitching at the same uh, angel, I think angel circuit, Ventec, uh, around town as Vincent. And I saw him again. I said, hey, um, you know, great bumping you he- into you here. And Vincent was with, with his previous company. And uh, we got caught up again, um, you know, had coffee, went to his office, kind of pitched him my idea. And I always saw Vincent more as a mentor figure in the startup space because, you know, he's worked at big companies, he's in development, you know, over, you know, many years of management, right? And um, wanted to get his opinion on my company. So went to his office, you know, we had chats. um, And then soon after I went to Shanghai because my previous company got accepted into a cross-border accelerator program called China Accelerator. Um, so I went to Shanghai for about a year and a half. And long story short, um, VR didn't really take off as I would like it to. So I came back to Vancouver, took a little break, looking for my next gig. Um, and Vincent coincidentally reached out to grab lunch. And that's kind of where we uh, started off working on a couple of projects together. Before Matador, we were actually working on Locus, uh, our first company, which is a geospatial air company. Uh, you know, similar concept, but... You know, obviously, we thought to kind of throw our shared experiences where I was coming from a VR, AR background. Vincent was coming from a map-based visualization background as well. So we decided to kind of combine it into one product. Um, but this time around, I think we were a little, a little bit more pragmatic in our approach. Um, so we decided to still park the idea because we felt that we weren't getting a lot of uh, good customer feedback in the market. Everyone was looking at the product as something nice to have more than I need this to solve a business pain, right? So, you know, instead of, you know, wasting our time building a business on assumptions, we just really validated that it wasn't going to work out as we would like it to. But this time we took like, I think, what Vince, like two or three months before we decided to pivot. Um, And that's kind of where we decided to put all of our attention into, you know, tackling collaboration and visibility challenges within an actual space that I think is, you know, in need to, um, in need for an innovation like Matador to kind of solve a lot of their industry pain. And that's when we shifted towards Matador more full time. Uh, Vincent, yeah, anything I, add to add to the partnership story? No, I, I think that's a great story. And, and truth to be told, like Sean and I, uh, I have been kind of following Sean's uh, LinkedIn lead for quite a while. Uh, you know, after I know him, um, even after he moved to Shanghai for a few years, uh, I have always seen him as a outgoing and, you know, a great marketer, uh, great PR, uh, if you will, great growth hacker. So <laughs> I always wanted to uh, see if there's an opportunity to work together. And, and you know, the time actually brought us, uh, you know, uh, we, we are both looking for the next gig uh, at the same time. So, um, and yeah, that just magically happened. And, and, and to add to our journey of uh, pivoting uh, and, and validating the market and going through multiple uh, ventures together, we actually get a lot of support from the local um, um, local organizations such as uh, UBC, Hatch, um, 
MVBC, you know, a lot of these companies are uh, constantly giving us feedback and, you know, either good or bad about the business, right? Like, which expedited our, our failure rate, which is great. Like we don't waste too much time and money on, on something that will not be working out and pushing us to focus on something that would be working. And, and I think, uh, yeah, so that, that is a big part of our journey. Definitely being, being able to support it, uh, be supported by, uh, by the local community here. One theme that I'm hearing from both of you in business is test and measure, test and measure, test and measure, and no one to call it quits or no one to hit the pause or the stop button. And I can assume through you both being serial entrepreneurs from working at big companies like Google, there's a lot always going on in the background. And also the other one that I noticed was there's no overnight success. Any thoughts yep. on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I can echo that because... Uh, my background before I started my um, first startup, so that time frame where I graduated from undergrad to starting my company, I was in sales. So I worked with Telus for a while. We were a third marketing, a third party marketing firm that got outsourced by Telus, but we represented Telus. So I did a lot of door to door and also went from small business, kind of like those Monero salespeople, but not really because, you know, those salespeople kind of get a bad rep. Uh, but we had a pretty hard time uh, selling to businesses back then as well because, um, you know, we had to literally just cold drop into small businesses trying to sign them up. Um, and I got really good at selling and building relationship in person um, before I decided to transition into building my startup. And I think the problem and the danger of being good at sales going to a startup is that when someone, when your customers, initial customers are not buying into your product as a startup, um, coming from a sales background, you would tell yourself that maybe it's my sales ability that comes into question. Um, but in reality, there might not be a market need. And that's like a very dangerous trap is that uh, for my first startup, I built it based on a lot of assumptions, right? Because I thought, you know, we can close this. We're good at, you know, pushing product to people. And I think a lot of times startup is a bit glorified because you think about all these stories about Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, that, you know, everyone was ridiculous, like ridiculing their idea. Everyone was making fun of them, but they just defied all possible odds. And, you know, but your life's not a lottery ticket. Right. And I think that's kind of where the problem is, is that, you know, those stories being fed into your brain subconsciously, you would think, OK, if my customers are not buying to my product, they're not forward thinking enough. They're not innovative enough. We don't need them. Right. But I think second, third time around, um, you become a lot more uh, in tune to what your customer and what the market is saying. And I think that's really important because you always want to look for a problem that's worth solving instead of building a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. That's brilliant. There is so much gold in that. I know that when I listen to the actual episode of this, I'm going back. I'm going to hit go back 15 to 30 seconds and listen to that over and over again. But thank you for that, Sean. Vincent, you wanted to add to that? Yeah, I would say that's where the failures, the, the value of failures comes in. The first time when you fail, you don't know why you failed, right? Uh, whether you're not doing something right or the market isn't there. So uh, how, how can you tell, right, as a, as a first-time founder? And only when you're failing like twice, three times, or even more, then you're starting to see a pattern. Hey, I have been improving our skill. You know, the company is doing better than last time, but why is it still not working? Then you start to realize, hey, maybe there's something wrong with the market or the product, right? As something external. Uh, maybe it's a good time for pivoting. And then also the failure allows us to learn what's the right thing to do versus not. 
who's the right person to hire versus not, right? And uh, we become smarter and more lean as we start our, you know, start a new startup. Like this is our uh, the third one. Uh, we're doing it together, so we kind of know what worked and what didn't work, and we start pouring our resources into that things that work, and then being more conservative on things that may or may not work uh, as a trial and error. So. Yeah, going to a point there, it's definitely keep validating, and uh, there's, there's, yeah, it's just the best way to 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 learn is to keep failing, failing quick, mm-hmm. basically. And one of the things that I heard you both talk about, as I talked, asked you about what's the history of Matador, is you were validating the possibility for working together, actually in your own incubators. You know, there was there was respect on on Sean's side saying, I looked at you, Vincent, as a mentor. And Vincent, you were saying, I was following along his journey on LinkedIn. And so you were, in essence, vetting each other before you ever decided to partner together. And having been in multiple different partnership relationships in my business, I can't recommend that enough, is know the people that you're getting into business with and do a values check. Know that you're aligned. Because there's nothing worse than building something successful and then recognizing you're not aligned with the people that you're spending probably more time than you would spend with your spouse or your partner with, right? They're both laughing at me and smiling and nodding their heads. So yeah, absolutely. Talk to our audience. You won the Innovation Award this year for Matador and what you do. Can you tell us, tell the audience, I'm going to put you in that pitch situation, know the ones you're speaking to right now, tell us what Matador is. So what Matador does fundamentally is to address the gap. I think in general, what we're targeting is the lack of efficiency when people are managing projects in the field. Um, if you look at any industry, you know, let's not talk about energy and environmental, but when you manage any projects, the issue is that you have different four or five different software to manage projects, right? People are still using spreadsheets. People are using project management software, you know, Asana, Trello, and most of the time when you're managing field projects, you also need a geospatial or map-based application. So imagine managing many different projects across multiple teams using four or five different software. It's worse than pulling teeth, especially when the, you know, the data behind each of these software don't really speak well with each other, right? So that's very, very painful. Um, I'm not sure if that's already kind of in your head as like worse than pulling teeth, but what we do is we dump everything down. We build a one-stop shop where you can visualize your project on portfolio level on a map, very intuitive map-based platform where you can see real-time updates of project activity, costs, assign tasks to people, invite collaborators in, um, and becomes a very easy way for non-technical user to be able to update and share geospatial information without, you know, having to talk to a, you know, trained GIS, like a geographic information system specialist, who's basically sitting in front of his computer and like plucking away, like, you know, at the back of the room, right? Kind of a very secluded and non-collaborative environment. And that's kind of where Matador comes in is to address the gap between not just dealing with internal teams within an organization, but also when interfacing with external parties as well. So tell us how you were contributing to helping fight COVID this year? We actually had the luxury, uh, not luxury, we were fortunate enough to uh, be able to work with, uh, work on a government project, which is a uh, COVID COVID prediction modeling engine. (laughs) It sounds really fancy, but uh, it's actually like a weather forecast, like uh, application where where you can put in your location and then, uh, you know, pick a date and they will actually predict uh, based on certain criteria, like 
the area you're in, the distance you're traveling to that location, how many interactions you have with uh, whoever is in, uh, in that location, it will actually tell you a risk level. And wow. then it will compare compare that with uh, with the government required or, or recommended level. So you can make decision on, if you're a business owner, for example, you can make decision on, okay, how many staff am I going to be uh, stationing in this location today uh, to keep it under the, you know, the, the, the risk level there. So um, that's what we have been trying to build. And we have, um, we're very fortunate to be able to work with uh, big companies such as MNP, Unity, 3D, and also a local company called EventBase. Um, and, and so the four tech company, including us, uh, we have been working together for six months and, you know, uh, full on, the, we have over 30 people working on this project for six months and be able to launch the first version uh, pretty quickly. So um, that's that's uh, that's a really noble and uh, exciting project for everyone in, in Matador. Um, and out of that project, we were able to uh, also, you know, work on a lot of improvements in terms of our product architecture, security, and all these uh, things that we would not have the luxury or the resources to be doing at the, such an early stage. So yeah, I would say, you know, besides being part of that noble, uh, you know, cause we, this project actually helped us a lot in our growth. That's fantastic. With regards to that noble cause, can you share with us taking on a project like that, that has that level of impact to humanity, to people, to keeping people safe? What did that do for your team? How did they react and what did they get from taking on a project like that? I think everyone is very supportive. Like uh, from the moment when when we heard about, you know, there's a proposal like that going on. Like everyone is super happy, super excited, and jumping into helping the proposal writing and you know uh, going through the process. And um, I think the I think we get the sense that everyone cares about trying to fight the COVID uh, situation. Um, and most of our team actually uh, outside of BC. And like we have people from Brazil, from India, from China, Vietnam, even Europe, and everyone is kind of uh, thinking the same way. Like, like how can I help this project uh, to be more successful? So I think uh, just the nature of the project brings people much closer together and much more, you know, excited. Uh, and and you know, we don't have to implement a lot of processes or typical development management techniques to get people. Uh, working, it's just natural, right? Like everyone wants to contribute, and that forms uh, that that uh, goes along with our culture as well. Like we are very automated. We never ask people to uh, clock in, clock out. You know, uh, everyone manage their own time, and we have a no, basically no no uh, no limited vacation policy, just like many of the uh, Silicon Valley companies. So. If you need to take a break, then take a break. If you want to work, you know, during the midnight, feel free to do so. As long as like we are, we're um, making sure all the team members are are getting the support they needed. I, I think this project brings that kind of culture into um, reinforces that kind of culture into our, our our business. That's fantastic. The freedom that you have and clear trust that you have of your team to implement something like a you need vacation, take vacation. You need a day off, take a day off. You want to work, you know, whatever hour to whatever hour that works for you, by all means, go ahead. I have no doubt that there are some business owners who cringed when they heard that as they were listening. And there's a lot of fear around giving people that level of freedom and autonomy. 
what would you say to them to maybe push them over a little to check out it or encourage them to give it a test in their business? What would you tell them about that? I would say it's it's not for every business for sure. Like you said, a lot of uh, it, it comes back to the culture. Like what what culture does the do the founders want to set up for the company, right? For me and Sean, uh, during this COVID pilot, actually helped us a lot. Uh, Sean is in Coquitlam, and I'm in the Vancouver area, so it's not that that you know it's not that uh, convenient to be able to meet up on on a daily basis. And and given the COVID situation here, so we naturally form a common uh, you know, understanding on the culture, saying, "Hey, it gotta be remote. We, we gotta have certain kind of uh, trust level here to uh, to allow us to work according to our own time." And the fact that we are working with a lot of remote, um, you know, team members, the time zone is always a challenge, right? Like, and and so, I mean, besides trying to figure out a common time for meetings, we can't really ask people in, say, India to be working during the PST hours here. So we got to accommodate in some sense. So when we're looking for people uh, to help us, we always look at the culture first. Like, are you going to be enjoying this type of uh, re- relationship? And are you going to be excelling in this relationship? Do you need to be managed or can you do it your own on your own? Um, so by having that mindset when we are hiring, when we're looking for help, um, it filters out a lot of um, uh, the non-fitting culture people. Uh, I would say, but at the same time, uh, this is just our our way of doing business, like at Netador, right? It doesn't mean that it will be um, it will be working out for for companies in different industry or different nature, having different culture. So uh, it's it's hard to say. There's not a right answer, I would say, from a culture perspective. It's more from a yeah, what do you what do you founders want to set up? Yeah, absolutely, Sean. I see you have something to add. Yeah, um, and I think we have the privilege of, you know, be able to adopt this culture because we're a software company, right? Um, but I think ultimately, at the end of the day, the reason why we wanted to have a culture that focused more on output than input, um, you know, rather than focusing on how many hours they spend, we just want to focus on performance and delivery simply because it's really how you want to grow your team, right? And we feel as a company, it's easier for us to scale if, we can foster like-minded individuals who can build and lead teams that are also like us going down, right? Um, it depends on who you want to build up as a team, right? Uh, if you want to build up a team that's just full of people good at taking orders that you have to micromanage, um, at the long run, it's going to tire yourself out and your business will be hard to grow. Um, so that's the reason why I feel it's true. It's not for everyone, but it really depends on how big you want to grow your business and how you want to scale. Right. And I think sometimes if you actually take a step back, let them actually steer the wheel, let them actually take charge. Um, they will actually appreciate it more in the long run because they feel they're adding value back in the company. They have a place, they have level of confidence within the organization rather than just someone that's taking orders, someone that's being micromanaged. So uh, it's definitely not for every organization, uh, but I think as a tech company, this is how we really want to you know, be able to really scale and grow the team um, by adopting this kind of company culture. Thank you for that. Really, really fantastic advice from both of you. Um, and it's clear that you know what you want to build and you know where you'd want to work, having probably evaluated places that worked and didn't work for both of you. And now you've wrapped that all up in what sounds to be a really successful culture. I want to shift to failure. And what I love is that you openly admitted we've had a lot of failure. We've learned from our failure. 
I'm curious as to what is one of those most memorable failures uh, that you've had? And yeah, people usually smile when I ask them that because you're like, oh, yeah, I remember how much that hurt. Um, tell us about a little bit about that failure. And most importantly, what did you learn from it? And my belief is that there's never the only failure is the failure to learn. Absolutely. Um, I think I can go first. Uh, I think failure was more prominent when I was just starting out in my own startup, first startup, um, you know, before Vincent and I really worked. I think one of the most memorable experience of failing is, you know, after we gone through that uh, China Accelerator program when I was in Shanghai, we spent a lot of times knocking doors, spent a lot of times trying to, I was literally juggling between trying to land as many investors meeting in a day. I remember waking up at 7 a.m., rushing to the airport within 30 minutes to fly to Shenzhen, which is basically like five hours away on plane, to land a very important VC meeting and then go back to Shanghai, uh, you know, within the same day uh, for another meeting, like, you know, almost at night, right? Because in Shanghai, people don't really sleep until like 2 a.m. So I was literally getting burned out. And I think at the time, my team felt that, you know, there wasn't any opportunities. And I think the failure came from the fact that we were so excited to go to a new environment that we didn't really plan out our steps carefully. Because when we were in Vancouver, the company had a bit of traction, but VR wasn't taking off in Vancouver. And the reason why I say this is because, you know, back then we assumed a lot of things, right? We thought, you know, having something on mobile, having something accessible was a good selling point to architects or property developer because we took 3D models and it turned into a full 3D walkthrough. Um, but in reality, um, design architecture is a very detail-oriented space. And when you're having something on mobile, you're trading away uh, that detail rendering for accessibility, which is not a good selling point. And if you look at the Vancouver market, 80% of pre-sales are sold out before they even look at the floor plans, right? So having that spatial awareness is not a really good selling point. And we were trying to target overseas buyers. So there was just a lot of uncertainty that we did not validate. We did not test early on. We just assumed that it was a good idea to sell to a certain market. And when we got to China, we thought, okay, no one was buying Vancouver. So China must be more forward thinking on tech. But with them, we realized that, you know, we were essentially in, you know, out of the frying pan and into the fire, right? We were in a unfamiliar territory with, you know, 400 other companies building something similar to us while they have a bigger team than us. So I think um, back then is we did not have that discipline, um, especially because going back to that uh, coming from sales background, right? Sales back then, it was when you perform, when you made sales, then basically you can do whatever you want during your free time. But Running a startup is totally not like that. And I think I took, you know, that um, self-employment, that entrepreneurship, I abused it in the beginning because I thought if I can land customers, if I can land pilot, I can work on my own time, you know, then I don't need to adhere to certain routine, right? Which is also another um, another failure that I would say is lacking that uh, discipline to adhere to certain routine. And being an entrepreneur is requires a lot of discipline um, and requires a lot more discipline than people think. So I think the two takeaways is, you know, the lack of discipline in terms of adhering to a certain routine um, and just, yeah, um, focusing too much on building a business where we were just building on, building on some assumptions, basically. Yeah. What I heard, and you just wrapped it up right there, assumptions are dangerous. 
And I completely agree with you on routine. Uh, being a former elite level athlete, I know that success is definitely driven by routine. And sometimes my friends, you know, they'll they'll drive by, they'll be in the neighborhood and they'll be like, you know, pre-COVID times, they'll be like, hey, we're in your hood. Do you want to go for lunch? And I'm like, I can't. I have meetings. I have a schedule. They're like, but you work for yourself. And there's this perception of this massive amount of freedom um, that, I don't know, it, it is there when you make it, but it requires structure to make that freedom, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I agree. I I, I, I was under the same uh, situation as you, um, you know, when COVID just came through a lot of my friends, they actually think I'm dodging them, which I'm not, I'm just really busy. But they always say, hey, you're working, you know, like you don't have work, you know, you work for yourself, you know, and I say, no, I actually have meetings like back to back. So yeah, the biggest entrepreneurial myth, you make your own schedule and you have lots of free time, right? That's like the biggest, and you won't uh, be able to enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> usually you won't, you won't you you won't be able to enjoy it uh when you know that your your own money is on the line there. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Vincent, tell us about uh your biggest failure story and what did you learn? Yeah, I I, I definitely would be saying uh the same thing as as Sean in terms of the not talking to people enough. Um and it's I would say uh, coming from a tech background, like I've been in the tech space for over 20 years uh, from developer to program managers to product managers and so on. So all over my career, before I become an entrepreneur, um, I've been trained to make sure everything needs to be uh, perfect before delivering, especially to my bosses. So uh, I can't really put a half uh, done product or screen or design, you know, in front of people, basically. And so from uh, from that jumping to entrepreneurship my i would say still to date that my my uh, something that i need to learn is you know how to find the fine balance between the business and the perfection like when you are putting money uh investing uh using your own saving into a product at which point do you feel you're comfortable in putting it in front of the vcs or in front of the first clients you know you're going to get a lot of criticism um, you know, because the product is just a, a MVP, right? Like the first version, uh, a lot of things will be broken. You know, they, they will be comparing you with market ready, uh, com- competitions and asking you why you're better than them, like all these things. And which is very discouraging from a, uh, technologist standpoint, because that's your baby, right? And, uh, you don't want people to, to say bad things about it. And when they do, um, you blame yourself. Hey, I should have done a better job on the product. Now that's a really a dangerous trap, I would say, because it's uh, it, it's a, a infinite loop of uh, negative feedback and wanting want the desire for wanting wanting to put more effort and resources and money into that product before your next variation of putting it out to people, and you kind of develop that fear of, hey, this product isn't good enough. I'm I'm not going to be talking to the customer yet. Uh, so, um, you know, before working with Sean, actually, I, I, I had a lot of trouble trying to find that balance. And Sean actually pushed me to the other side of things. Like, he is great at PR and he's great at, you know, uh, telling people about, you know, the product. So at some point, I was like, I gave up. Like, Sean, do whatever you need. Uh, I, w- I will let you know what the, what the product, the next release of the product will be like and do whatever you need uh, is necessary. So I start st- I, at first I stopped looking at his, uh, you know, his post because I don't want to see the, 
uh, like the non-ready product screens to be published on the social media, right? But actually, the effect has been quite amazing. Uh, we're starting to hear pe people feedback, good or bad, uh, and which helps us in pivoting our product in a certain way. You know, giving us feedback into uh, of building a mixed feature and so on. So uh, I guess still to date, uh, we're trying to learn the lesson of not spending too much. Uh, not being too perfectionist in terms of the product, but allowing the external output or the people that we're more people to put put it in front of more people while it's still being being built is is what I'm suggesting. And um, in some business, uh, in in one of the earlier ones that we did together, we built we tried to build a product before uh, kicking off the marketing campaign, which was a total mistake. Like we we should have been kind of having some even mock design and, and start advertising, start even selling at that point, uh, which would have saved us so much time and money on, uh, you know, building something that didn't work and have to redo it again. So. Yeah. I once heard perfection is the enemy of good. And I would suggest that perfectionists, perfection is the enemy of great. And I get that sense that uh, that's probably true for you, Vincent. And I, I love that you have a business partner who can help balance that out as a perfect recovering perfectionist myself, still in the journey. I understand that value of having someone on the team who's just like, you know what, it's time for me to take it out of your hands and just see if the balloon will float up. Like just let's just see what happens, you know, having that that extra, that extra support there. So lots of experiences coming through. And Sean, I'd like to know from your Shanghai-based experience and doing business over there, I'm curious as to what differences you noticed in business culture between Shanghai and Vancouver, and were there any different ways of doing business in Shanghai that you've brought here that have been a great advantage for you? Um, yeah, good question. So <clears throat> I think out of um, being in Shanghai was actually my first experience in China. Um, I was born and raised in Taiwan. My family immigrated here when I was eight. Um, so I never really stepped foot in China. And I think I can still remember someone saying this, and I completely agree looking back, is that Shanghai is not a very good representation of China because um, if you go to Beijing, if you go to other cities, um, China is such a different beast that every city have their own way of doing culture. And Shanghai is very similar to how Western, uh, you know, like North America, they do business here. Um, I would say the only difference um, that I realized is the way people interact. Everything seems to be at a faster pace, the way people talk, um, <clears throat> just even the way people answer emails, right? Uh, people get back to your email or, you know, they hardly use email. In fact, they use WeChat. I think 90% of businesses are done on WeChat because WeChat in China has everything like payment system, mobile payment, shops, vendors. You can share PDF files. You can look at videos. Um, and just overall very efficient, right? Um, you know, they take probably like two or three seconds to get back to something. Whereas here, when we send out the email, we might might wait like half a day, couple of hours, or just, it's very good for me because I'm a very fast, I'm very oriented to that fast paced environment, but I feel like it gets a bit overwhelming because there's a lot of distraction and noise, especially when it comes to the way that, you know, there's obviously a lot more nightlife. There's a lot more like the population of Shanghai alone is already 25 million, right? That's like more than a half of the entire Canadian population in one city. Um, so I feel, always tell people that I feel like one month in Shanghai feels like one year everywhere else, simply because like every day you would meet 
at least three or four people get acquainted. My WeChat contact list went from 200 to almost 3000 when I was there, right? Just all the business contacts I met. And there's almost three or four different business events for expats networking, like within the same day. And just trying to go from different events, trying to still talk to your customer, trying to fundraise, you know, trying to hang out with your friends. Um, you know, you almost feel like you need to clone yourself four or five multiple times. But overall, I think it's a really interesting experience because it's so much faster paced that people really strive for convenience, right? When when you go out with a bunch of friends, when the bill comes, people are already, you know, scanning their QR code and everyone's already, you know, calling DD, um, which is the Chinese version of Uber, uh, to the next destination, right? Here, you have to wait for the bill to come. Everyone has to, you know, like look at the receive. Hey, I ordered this split bill. And then maybe the maybe the server will say, oh, does anybody need a machine? Go back another 10 minutes, right? Like how long does it take for you to finish your meal wanting to exit the restaurant? Might take like 20 minutes here, right? That's no exaggeration, but there it literally takes like two minutes and you're in a car and you're ready to your de- next destination and ready to go. And I think that also translates to how people do business there. Um, but that also creates a lot of issues because, you know, when I was in Shanghai, I became so buried into charging one direction that I didn't have the time for breathing to really pull myself back and look at, you know, all the problems within my business that was going on, right? I was blind to that because I was so stuck in that fast-paced environment that I failed to pull myself out and look at, you know, where the problems are. Are we even in the right market? Is there even a demand? So that's why I kind of went back to Vancouver uh, to take a break because I was literally burning out, um, to be very honest, in that kind of environment. It sounds like it would happen very, very quickly. And I'm not going to lie. I was with you when you were like, they don't use email there. And I was like, yes, can we please do that? Email is the bane of my existence. And then you started talking about all the distractions and I can just imagine WeChat and all the sounds and dinging. And and I was just like, okay, maybe not. (laughs) Yeah. Vincent, what about you? You were a project lead at nonetheless Google Earth. So I'm going to ask you the same question as it applies to the culture and ways and being ways of being and doing at Google. What are some differences in the way Google does business say to the previous places you've worked that you've brought forward that really benefit Matador? Yeah, I think I think Google set a really good benchmark in terms of uh, the tech culture processes and you know uh, the expectation. Uh, from developers. So my time being at Google, ironically, um, that was when they are over, you know, 10,000 employees already. So if you can, you can probably imagine when you're at that size, it's just operating like a government entity. What I say that is like, uh, everything will be, you know, have to go through multiple level of approval, you know, uh, when you wanted to achieve something, you have to get, you have to get alignment from different teams and so on. And, and so my experience at Google actually are like that. Um, um, we, we can really counterintuitively, like, like I didn't feel that kind of entrepreneurship, uh, within the organization there. However, um, we were able to learn a lot of, uh, I was able to learn a lot of, um, what is expected, like in terms of the documentation processes and all the tools that are needed in order to, you know, um, uh, make a, team of 30 or 40 people if to be efficient in a 10,000 uh, people company. And when I think back, 
it's almost like um, running a business within, you know, a community. Essentially, you need to get the uh, support, you need to get the funding, uh, and you need to deliver, and you need to, you know, present your business case and all these things. So, in a sense, I guess it's it's you know a, a, a mini version of the entrepreneurship uh, inside Google. Although the experience itself, it's it's different, totally different from uh, after I kind of decided to move into a full time entrepreneur role. And I think the yeah, I have a couple of other experiences. I worked at Nortel and I work at the uh, Soul Systems. Both are over ten thousand people, and so those are the experience I have. On one hand, uh, having to deal with a lot of uh, uh, hierarchy and processes, but then um, afterwards I started, you know, coming back here in Vancouver and start working at a company called Elastic Path, uh, working at a great company called Icometrics. Both are both are still great company now. Uh, they are around 200 people size, um, and the culture that it's a lot more like a family culture. Like I, I was able to know much more people, and was able to do things a lot faster, which I really prefer. So I guess uh, one of one of the things that make Sean and I a good good team is that uh, we both want to uh, be efficient and want to execute things very fast. When we see an email, we reply right away. When we see a, 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 a action, we'll do it right away, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so I feel, I certainly feel that kind of a, a culture and momentum happening in a smaller company. Um, and so, um, yeah, in terms of, and the mixture of both, uh, you know, working at a larger company, learning their, their organization and the structure versus the efficiency in a smaller company actually shaped, uh, our culture now and added So. We're not like like a free form company that allows people to just experiment without guidance. Uh, we try to establish the minimum required structure given our size uh, and try to execute that. And they actually um, create some certain kind of uh, boundary and also security for people uh, so that they're not stepping over, over each other's toes and other things. So it's a great learning uh, coming from those two type of uh, companies for sure. As two tech entrepreneurs with clearly deep experience in tech and having touched or even worked in different communities in different places in the world, even with your company now having all your contractors or team members in different parts of the world, talk to me about your opinion on BC as a hub for innovation. You know, there's definitely mixed reviews um, in terms of tech innovation in BC. I think back then it was a couple of years ago when all the tech conglomerates like Amazon uh, you know, Microsoft coming to town. There were articles that were circulating saying uh, it will actually foster better uh, environment for startups. And I was really against that from an argument perspective that I think the more conglomerates come into Vancouver, there's less tech talents that are looking to start startup, right? Like you're literally taking tech talents away from starting startups and putting them into, you know, large companies where they can actually sit in beanbag chairs and have like, you know, Pong, like, you know, all day long and like free flow bar. So um, I have a mixed review on that. And I think the tech, there is definitely a lot of tech talents here. Um, I think with the way COVID is structured, it definitely leveled the playing field that, you know, not just in Silicon Valley, there's Obviously, a lot of opportunities, a lot of tech talents, a lot of great companies in Vancouver, BC, even across Canada as well. I think the only difference is that if you look at the demographic, why there isn't a lot of startup success within Vancouver from a tech perspective is because 
one, I would say the lack of capital um, and two, the lack of, um, you know, capital experiences. When I mean capital experiences, I mean venture capital. And the reason being is that I think, you know, maybe I, I might get roasted or commented on this, but this is a very uh, candid and very, uh, you know, very raw statement that I think is because when you look at cities like Silicon Valley, they're less risk adverse compared to Vancouver. And the reason being is that there's a lot of startup entrepreneurs or, you know, tech, very young, uh, you know, developers that work in companies that are starting up become like really, really big and successful, like in the case with Twilio and some other companies, and they instantly become millionaires coming out. And thus they have the tendency to put money back into tech companies and that ecosystem to foster other entrepreneurs and other startups. But you don't see that happening in Vancouver, right? Most of the investors and angel investors that we bump into were either ex-finance guys, um, you know, they they were, you know, ex, you know, investing in real estate. Um, so they're not coming from a tech background. They haven't built startups. They haven't really gone through that whole process. And they're much more risk averse, right? Especially, Vince, you can probably agree with me that when we go to any, um, you know, pitch events in town locally, um, they would ask us for evaluation, projections, very, um, very questions. Like the questions they ask are geared more towards companies that have been around for five to 10 years that have a set valuation, that have a set projection. Uh, whereas if you look at, the VCs in Silicon Valley, the kind of question they ask is focusing on team, founder, product, market size. So it's a very different focus. And I think that was what has been holding Vancouver back. But this is my opinion. And I think now that with COVID and with the way situations are, that it has definitely leveled the playing field where us being a Vancouver company or anybody else, they have the ability to access capital, access resources, mentorship, um, even a lot of great accelerator program, um, you know, there's too many to name, but now they're having remote batches and there's so many virtual events that it just becomes, you know, a lot more accessible for companies in BC and across Canada to access. Um, so I think there's definitely an improvement, but, you know, I think we're getting there for sure. I was just about to say when I grew up in my career, I started off in an agency that was in, um, Kitchener Waterloo, and which was its own tech hub with a lot of organizations and startups coming out of University of Waterloo. But back then, the message was always go west, young man, like go west. And I think still from here, there's a little bit of that sense of go south because you're already west. But I love that you tied together what's changed in the landscape of now in this new era of business is there's a lot more opportunity. So given that this is the first season of this podcast and its theme is community, what role has community played in the creation and success of Matador? I think community really helped. Uh, I always like to say, you know, it takes a community to build a company. And I think, you know, we were the reason why I think through business competition, through our clients, through just being very, you know, public um, and even working on very, um, you know, noble initiative like on the COVID pilot, uh, we realized that we were, you know, building a lot of support and uh, followers along the way that, you know, that I don't think without them, we could have even, you know, come close to winning the best innovation award, to be honest. And I think it's just um, people look at clients, customers, like clients and customer as users, right, in tech company. But I like to see them as supporters and, you know, um, a community of Matador, right? So 
that's why I think for a lot of our clients, supporters that we always send like our caps, um, I think it's also very good branding too. So we'll, we'll be sending you, you two caps as well. But yeah, uh, we've been using the caps and also just, you know, that brand, that image of Matador um, towards our clients. So we're trying to really create a fun environment, not just for our client supporters, but for people that, you know, we're bringing on to work with us as well. And I think that culture can be contagious uh, from inside out. And yeah, I think, you know, it's really about reciprocation, right? Give back to the community, um, you know, by providing a really innovative solution. And at the same time, uh, you know, they can also support you and, you know, provide you opportunities that you can't do yourself. And I think uh, looking back, I think Vincent said something to me during dinner one time. I think, you know, it was I think that time we were really stressed out because of, you know, some contracts that were being signed and stuff like that. Uh, Vincent always say that, you know, the first time you succeed, uh, you know, your ego plays in and you always sit, you tell yourself that it's because of your ability that you succeeded. But then in reality, if you actually don't succeed the first time and you succeed the second or third time, um, you'll realize that it's not just you that made it possible for you to succeed, but it's a macro influence of everybody that's being involved in the process to drive you to success. I think that's really powerful is how you recognize the community of Matador. Love that. Vincent, what are a few communities that you would recommend for business owners who are, say, new to Vancouver or they're new in the startup space? What are some two or three communities that you'd say you have to check these out? You have to get involved in these communities. What would those be? Well, you have to check out the small business BC community for sure. I did <laughs> not pay him thing. to say that for our listeners. <laughs> no, it's it's true. Like uh, I, I think it's they provide so many so so many different kind of uh, supports from you know free lessons, free webinars to perks and and discounts with the local businesses and all these things that are super important for a lean type of startup with limited resources. Besides them, I, you know, I can't give enough credit to IRAP. Uh, it's a provincial innovation research and assistant program. It's a long form, I believe. Um, they provide a lot of assistance, not just financial, but advisory assistance to uh, startup companies, even the first time. Uh, they will be working with you along the way. Like our current uh, advisor has been with us for over three years uh, since the day one when we started. And, and yeah, can't, 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 give enough credit to them. The other, uh, there are so many of them at, at UBC and SFU, they have their own um, uh, venture accelerators or incubators. The uh, E at UBC would be a good one to check out. Um, venture Labs from SFU would be another one. NVBC is a great competition uh, that held every year around this time. Um, so use that as, as, a, as, a, as a way to practice and also gain mentorship. And if you're good enough, then yeah, get, get some prize price, uh, you know, monetary price from them as well. Um, and then Innovate BC and BC Technology, these are the two great communities that, that everyone can check out as well. So uh, I, I feel how BC, yeah, there, there is never a short shortage of uh, supportive community. And so, so it's a really good place to start your first business for sure. So if you're listening into this podcast and you found yourself reaching for a pen to get that list, we'll make sure that they show up, that list shows up in the show notes. And I think, Sean, you were going to add a few as well. Yeah, I wanted to close up with a closing statement. Going back to the innovation in BC, I think, you know, in reality, BC creates a safer environment for innovation, like a sandbox. 
because I can say that, you know, down south, like in Silicon Valley, it's less forgiving there for starting entrepreneurs. So I think BC is actually a great place to start the innovation, um, you know, get mentorship, get support, like from IRAP government, go through accelerators here, um, you know, tons of great ones like yeah, UBC, Hatch, um, and be able to really get to a certain level of, you know, like robust, like having that um, level of traction before you start, you know, moving down or going to other markets. Because I think if you start a company anywhere else, I think it's less forgiving and there's more competition. So I think BC actually has a really good um, paced environment for starting business owners and entrepreneurs. So I love how you just slid into the code host chair with me and did a full summary there. That was fantastic. Maybe you should, maybe you guys should have your own podcast. Um, one last question. I'm curious to hear both of your answers. What is one of the most valuable pieces of business advice that you've received along your entrepreneurial, that word, entrepreneurial journey that you would pay forward to our listeners? Uh, for me, it would be never give up. <laughs> Very cliche, but uh, that's, that's so true. When you are in ups and when you're in down, especially, it's so tempting to to just want to move back. You know, I, I have asked myself, hey, uh, do I want to find a full time job again? Like, am I am, am I able to uh, to work in a in a large company or even a, you know a, a company at all? Um, work for someone? I think I think it's if you decided to move into this role, being an entrepreneur, then stick with it. Yeah, find ways to get yourself out of the you know um the downs right so that's that's what makes you a successful uh business and entrepreneur is don't don't give up that's fantastic sean yeah and uh i think for me it would be um a great quote that i live by from winston churchill is that success is the ability to jump from failure to failure with optimism enthusiasm actually and i think being an entrepreneur uh you know echoing vincent's um you know favorite line of never give up is also that persistence to keep going i was at a fork uh coming back from shanghai i was gonna go you know do a corporate job or should i you know pursue my path in entrepreneurship and i think i'm very torn apart but i think uh in the end i still chose the right path because i think you know, it's also going back to that statement too, right? Once your mind expands to a certain point, there's no going back, right? And once you have the taste of, you know, be able to really push yourself, being able to wake up every day and have something to look forward to, it's really hard to go back to, you know, just doing a job, right? So I think that's the reason why I kind of stuck with it and be really open-minded and be able to really embrace failure, I think goes a long way. So the ability to jump from failure to failure with enthusiasm, will be your success. So That's great. It's clear to me through this interview that you guys never do give up. And I really appreciate you taking the time to give back to our community that we share here in BC in innovation for small business BC. So thank you so much for joining us. And I look forward to seeing you guys in real life, hopefully sometime soon. Yeah, same here. Hopefully. Same here. Uh, yeah. Appreciate for having us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for Our having pleasure. me. Our pleasure. Thanks. Having started my career in the tech sector, that interview was a bit nostalgic for me. The tech startup scene is so exciting. I hope that that interview with Matador got you fired up with some inspiration and new ideas. Thanks again to Sean and Vincent for sharing their stories and all of the business lessons that they've learned in building their award-winning business. Speaking of inspiration... 
This top three takeaways segment is to put the inspiration you just heard into action and hopefully generate some new traction for your business. Our producer, Darren, is my co-host for this segment, and he brings another perspective. Darren's role at Small Business BC is the content coordinator, and every day he's immersed in the stories and learnings of small businesses. Let's get right into it today. What was your first takeaway from this week's interview with Sean and Vincent? So first of all, I was completely fascinated by the adaptability shown by Sean in how he could pivot from the pressure cooker environment of the Shanghai business world to the more, you know, laid back West Coast business culture that we have here in BC. Um, hearing how he packed his schedule was, you know, moving from networking sessions to events to meetings, all while he's in cabs, answering emails and responding to messages. To be honest, it sounded completely exhausting to me, but it, it served to highlight the adaptability and flexible mindset that entrepreneurs need to be a success. And obviously, it's not a direct comparison for many of our listeners as they're probably operating on a smaller scale, but you might one day grow to having to navigate these kind of challenges. So it's worthwhile to start thinking adaptably early on. You know, what changes could you make to your business to ensure that you can thrive in other markets where the norms are, you know, both cultural and work-wise aren't the same as here in BC? I absolutely agree. Understanding the market you're in and the market you're about to enter into is critically important for success because quite often they differ. Even if it's just small nuances of difference, it's really important to know the difference and know who you're talking to with those differences. So my takeaways this week are both traps. And number one is the jargon trap. When communicating about your business, products, or services, it's critically important to avoid using jargon, industry terms, technical terms, acronyms, and slang. That's a big list. But when you use those indecipherable business or technical terms, it can put your audience off because it's not inclusive. It puts up a wall between you and the people that you want to engage because you're requiring them to meet you at your level of expertise. And as an expert in your sector, in your business, in the products that you develop, you're probably one of the top 5%. So very few people are going to be able to meet you there. And this really isn't good when you're telling people about your business, selling your products or services, or pitching for big stakes. The real skill here is to communicate your expertise in simple, accessible terms so that anyone can understand it. To be inclusive, it's important to meet people where they're at, by communicating with words and terminology that they easily understand. So that when you're talking about who you are as a business, what you do, and the value you deliver, when you leave jargon, industry terms, technical terms, acronyms, and slang out of the picture, you're going to win every time. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that, Carly. And, you know, it's only natural to want to show off your expertise, to want to show off your understanding of this language, but just know that some people might bounce off that and find that inaccessible. So my next uh, takeaway that I wanted to touch on was to find a partner who complements your skill set. Uh, if, if you wind back to the start of the interview, you'll hear Sean makes a throwaway remark where he said that his job was to take care of all the tasks that Vincent doesn't want to do. And I know he was half joking, but to me, that's an incredibly useful insight. A good partner in business would complement your skill set. And it's no good having two people who possess, say, a mastery of marketing or a brilliance on the tech side. 
you need that blend of skills where you can accentuate each other's positives while also serving to plug the knowledge gaps that each other might possess. And that line of thinking is true in other areas, be it relationships, sports, you know, you name it. I would also recommend looking for a values fit. When you find someone who shares the same values as you, it makes it infinitely easier to work together. Now on to my next takeaway. The second trap is the perfectionist trap. A wise coach once said to me that people other than yourself will never notice the final 20% of effort that you put in. And I've learned that over the years, through trial and error, that he was right. The problem with applying perfectionism to your work, especially when you're a perfectionist, is that you put a minimum of 110% into everything that you do. That means that that is at least a 30% wasted effort when the rest of the world is only going to see and hold you to the 80%. So just imagine this. Imagine if you took that 30% extra and converted it to time. That would save you a ton of time. Even better, it'll get you a lot of your workday back, possibly even a lot of your life if you're prone to working after hours. So to all my fellow perfectionists, Darren included, stop it. Deliver the 80% and trust that it's awesome. And also, you need to recognize that in the vast majority of cases, you will be your own harshest critic. Nobody is going to be looking at things with the same level of detail and critical eye that you are. So a little self-compassion in these cases is well warranted and maybe try not to be so hard on yourself. So speaking of being <laughs> being hard on ourselves, uh, Carly, I, we have a bit of a problem here. I, I've just realized that our listeners are probably thinking that we've lost the ability to count. When we, <laughs> spoke to, when we spoke to Ed and Natasha in the last episode, and also in this episode, we've delivered a little bit more than three takeaways. Well, I've always admitted that math is not my strong point. Um, that's why I started out coloring for a living. It's so hard when there's so much business brilliance coming out of these interviews. Admittedly, also, I'm a big fan of alliteration. So when we branded this section, the top three takeaways, it's pretty catchy. But I guess you and I have something to work on, Darren, and we need to figure out, are we doing three or are we doing three each? Yeah, you and I need to go back to the, to the drawing board here and uh, <laughs> figure this out. But, you know, on another note, on a more positive note for our listeners, if you take any of these takeaways and put them to work in your business, please, we would love to hear about it. Like whether you can reach out to us at madepossible at smallbusinessbc.ca and just, you know, let us know. Yeah, we'd love to hear about your success uh, from implementing these takeaways, which reminds me. We want this podcast to be a huge success, to reach as many entrepreneurs and small business owners as possible. So we're turning to you. You can help us make this possible by rating this podcast and or posting a review. Show us some love because we would love to hear what you think and help us reach people far and wide. All right, folks, that's it for this episode. Thanks for all your support and listening in. See you all next time.